like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be taking a look at Dick's contribution to the wonderful anthology Dangerous Visions, which was published in 1967 and includes many innovative works of speculative fiction, um, really kind of breaking new ground in science fiction. It's, it's If you haven't picked up that anthology, I mean, just for historical reasons it's it's a good one to look at um it's really got a wonderful introduction even by Isaac Asimov who's kind of passing on the torch to the new generation of speculative fiction writers um Dick of course had published so much by the point that he became recognized in Dangerous Visions that um that if you're kind of reading along like we've been you may not think it was a big deal but it really did kind of put Dick onto a new stage. I think that's his first straight-to-anthology publication. Everything up to that point had been in uh, the magazines. Of course, the magazines have been declining since since the 50s anyways, and science fiction writing would move more towards novels and anthologies and things like this. So anyways, but the faith of our fathers, or just faith of our fathers, I think there isn't the other, is really an important bo- uh, story. It, it's really one of arguably two stories that could be considered his last great short stories. The other would be The Electric Ant, um, but I think Faith of Our Fathers is much more bold. Um, it's very bleak, of course. It's it's not a happy tale. It d- doesn't have very much comedy in it, but it's very much, I think, a symbol of what Dick was trying to do in the 60s, especially kind of his interaction with the drug culture and mental illness and and political power. In a lot of ways, it's a it's a story of of the mid '60s and of the '60s revolt. Even though I think think Dick was very, I guess, responsive to some of the broader political issues. Uh, he he kind of bites at the edges of them, but he's never, you know, quite on the forefront. He's got such this kind of es- esoteric view of power, right? The black iron prison and things like that that it doesn't really fit into the conventional political narratives of the '60s. I don't know if SDS people read Philip Dick or not. I, I don't think very much. But in any case, it's it's not like these are overtly political texts. But this one does try to get into uh, an interpretation of the heart of political power. So it's a, it's a really good story. It's it's a really important one to read if you're following Dick's career. So I'm going to look at that story. And then at the end, I'm going to look at a story published actually in 1968. But it's only one paragraph long. And it's called The Story to End All Stories for Harlan Ellison's anthology, Dangerous Visions. And um, it was originally published in 1968 in a, in a magazine or something. And it's it's really only one paragraph, so I'll only say a few words about it. Uh, there's not that much to talk about that particular story. I mean, maybe you could do a line-by-line, word-by-word analysis, but I don't really think so. It's just a little kind of fun add-on. But Dick obviously was connecting that story to Faith of Our Fathers in some way, and it's... So let's just look at them together rather than do a whole episode on a, on a something that would take one minute to read. Okay, so with that, let's jump into 
Faith of Our Fathers. Uh, as I said, originally published in 1967 in Dangerous Visions, uh, but you can find it now in many anthologies of Dick's writing or probably other science fiction anthologies. You can also find it in The, Cla- the Collected Stories of Philip Dick, Volume 5. So um, that, that's where you can find it, lots of places. So uh, as always, I'll jump into the plot summary and then continue on with uh, some of my analysis. So our main character is, is Tong Qian. Uh, and he's walking the streets of Hanoi, and he meets a street peddler. Qian denies needing any of his wares, which mostly include home remedies. So um, it's sometime in the future. Set in Asia, which is something that Dick does a little bit more of. The black box wasn't set in Asia, but you had kind of Asian characters, and you had Asian kind of literary themes. Of course, you have Man in the High Castle where the I Ching and Japanese rule over the United States is, is played with. But I think in the black box, you he's really starting to more directly talk about Asian religions and, and settings and contexts. This one, you know, he sets right in in Hanoi. He tries to escape the, the street peddler, but the peddler reminds him that the law requires that Qian purchase something from the street peddlers. The peddler then offers Qian a herbal remedy that cures eyes that have been tired from long political monologues the citizens are forced to endure on television. So we get a little bit of the taste of the environment we're in, in which you have power being projected through screens, uh, of course, an old science fiction trope, and people are forced to watch it. So he's going to provide a little bit of medicine that'll help people just kind of endure that. So he has to buy it. Uh, Qian then goes into the post-war Ministry of Cultural Artifacts to meet his colleagues, uh, Cao Pin and Darius Pethel. They're in charge of a new school, a quote-unquote ideological and cultural establishment, being set up in San Fernando. This is going to target the youth of the, of, Western US, of the Western U.S. and try to really ideologically correct them. Qian's task will be to read the student essays to see who is in most need of ideological correction and therefore most worthy of attendance to the school. So actually the people who go to the school are not the best students, but the ones who need the most ideological fixing. It's a very tricky mission for Chin because American youths are very good at faking their ideological commitments. So he has to kind of read through the the text to find who's just kind of faking his his or her ideological commitment to the system. Pethel, and I think this is basically a straight up kind of Chinese communist Maoist system that's that's spread around much of the world it's it's now Pethel shows him two essays really to test Qian's ability to identify the right student and he pushes Qian to give an answer after a very cursory examination of one of them making one of these makes a use of an old Arabic poem from the thousand and one nights and argues for the brutal repression of anti-party groups in the United States Qian manages to delay a final verdict and basically says he has to look at it some more but he does consider the ideological failings of, of, of education in the, in the United States at that time. So that's how the story opens. Um, at home, he looks at the second paper, which is an essay built around a poem. This one interprets Don Dryden as an early critic of capitalism. A message from the great benefactor, now this is their leader, is announced on the television. And in this message, the great benefactor mentions the great task before Tong Qian. So it's actually a, a message targeting him. So. You know, every, I guess everyone in the world is seeing this. I, these, these messages may be individualized, though. Um, it's, it's kind of unclear. But, you know, it's, it's targeting him. And he's actually talking about Qian has this great task for the education of, of, of Americans, right? 
Chen figures that this was a personalized message for him and not broadcast widely, but again, it's it's not clear how much of these, everything is kind of subjective in the story, especially vis-a-vis -vis the great benefactor. Anyways, he opens up, up the package he purchased from the vendor and he finds snuff in there. You know, snuff's that like tobacco, you just snuff up your nose, stuff, stuff up your nose and snort it rather than smoke it or chew it. And I don't know if many people do this anymore. But he finds that. So he takes it, and then he ignores the television for a moment, and this leads to a knock on the door. And he finds the building warden there, a man named Mo Gui, and he finds him for looking away from the television. And it reminds him that this message is directed towards him today. Back at the television, Qian sees the image of the great benefactor begin to fade away, and it's replaced with a robotic monstrosity. Qian immediately contacts uh, the security police, Sekpool, and reports that the peddler was selling a hallucinogenic drug. I mean, and this makes sense, right? You you snort something and you see the leader turn into a kind of a, kind of a monster. So obviously it was some kind of hallucinogenic rather than what it was advertised to be. A few minutes later, the police arrive, investigate the snuff, take down Chen's story, and then send a du the dubious drug to the lab. The lab report comes back quickly through Chen's video phone, and they tell him that the drug is phenothysine, uh, anti-hallucinogenic. Uh, so it's not a hallucinogenic, it's actually anti-hallucinogenic. And so why would an anti-hallucinogenic make the great benefactor appear to be a monster? Not long after this, a doorbell rings. He answers to find a woman who asks him if he still has the snuff and what he saw when he mm -hmm. used it. Specifically, she wants to know what the great benefactor looked like for him. She explains that everyone who uses the drug sees one of 12 different creatures. Chen's machine is called the Clanker, but there's also other monsters that the Great Benefactor will appear as, such as a Lovecraftian horror, although they don't use the term Lovecraftian, but it's the way it's described. It's like something out of a Lovecraft novel or story. You see a bird, some see a bird, some see an alien. The woman says that she particularly sees a whirlwind, and she reveals herself to be Tanya Lee, a minor clerk in Chen's ministry. She is part of a group, she says, that it has learned that the water in circulation is being tainted with hallucinogens. This is one common hallucinogen shared among all who drink water. But strangely, there seems to be 12 distinct realities that the people uh, can observe if they counteract the hallucinogen with this drug. Qian threatens to turn Li in, but she convinces him that she is not anti-party, but she's part of a group devoted to learning the truth about who or what rules them, right? So this, this sort of makes sense that if you realize that the people in charge of your party state are actually monsters, then it's not anti-party to try to investigate and figure out what that is, right? Uh, Dick's not primarily writing an anti-communist tract here. He's really talking about the nature of political power, I think. Now, Lee wants to help Qian choose the right essay because the idea here is that if he chooses the right essay, he'll be promoted and he'll get into a, a, a higher role in the government and maybe in the education ministry. And then maybe at some point he can use the anti-hallucinogen in the physical presence of the great benefactor to see what he is in his true form rather than just what people see through the television. Lee identifies the most aggressive essay as the heretical one saturated with party genre, so j jargon. And this is kind of obvious, right? The, the one who just can repeat with the most belligerent language the, the party line is probably the one faking it. We could have figured that out, I'm sure. Qian later on meets with Pethel and Sopin, the other people in his ministry, and it, indeed he correctly identifies the heretical essay. 
Pethel informs Qian that the image of the great benefactor is, in fact, manipulated. He says, you know, he's actually a Caucasian man named Thomas Fletcher. He's told this because he'll be soon be meeting the great benefactor at the leader's villa. So we have another layer of, of kind of falsehood, right? It seems whoever the great benefactor is appears when you t take the anti-hallucinogen as a monster. But here the government agents are saying, well, we've been lying about who he is. But it's not. He's a monster deep down. He's, he's actually just a white guy. So white guys are monsters. Is that the is that where we're heading with this? Anyways, he's he's told he's going to be meeting the great benefactor at the villa. Chen wonders if Lee was an agent attempting to learn if Chen was actually anti-party. You know, there's all these kind of doubts and suspicions in these kind of totalitarian states. Again, a kind of a classic trope of this type of literature. Of course, you have it in 1984. Now, on the day of his visit to the great benefactor's villa, Chen is stopped by the peddler who hands him some more of the anti-hallucinogenic drug. The package has a note in it from Lee warning him not to try to locate her after the party. So then he goes to take the drug. Qian is checked in before entering the party. The party is populated with men in formal dress, and there's also nude women. So it's kind of a hedonistic sort of ball. Women pass around drinks for the crowd. A woman near Qian, a guest as well, is anxious to meet, quote unquote, his greatness. And when the great benefactor arrives, Qian is horrified. It's not any of the 12 images that have been seen on TV by the other people who take the drug or the anti-drug. It's actually beyond form, and it's a it starts to violently consume the life of the people in the room, draining their life force with an insatiable appetite. Chen thinks for a moment that this creature is God, and it starts to talk directly to Chen. It tells him that the things it consumes mean nothing to him, that they are undifferentiated to it. Each will be consumed. He then interprets the Arabic poem that Chen read in the essay earlier to mean that God is death. It stops Qian from killing him by grabbing his shoulders and telling him that he founded both the party and the anti-party and all of their institutions. Qian hits him and then falls unconscious. Sometime later, he's woken up and scolded for getting drunk and making a fool of himself. He is then sent out in a cab. That's the climax of the story. Uh, later, Tanya Li sees Qian in his room. He talks her into staying with him for the night. Qian is unable to describe what he saw and asks Li if she believes in God. She finds, or she describes how she finds a belief in God old-fashioned. Qian asks if he is good and if good and evil can be two sides of God. He tells her that he wants to stay on the hallucinogen, though. They have sex, and Li tells Qian that making love is a way to enter into a timeless zone. Qian gets a towel for Li in the bathroom and notices that the place that it, the creature, touched the, the great benefactor, the monster, touched him, maybe God, whatever, touched him on the shoulders bleeding, and he realizes it will soon kill him. And that's the story, the faith of our faith, the faith of our fathers. Now the theme, let's get into the analysis. The theme at the heart of faith of our fathers, which is the work as important to any as any of Dick's novels, really, is the central odiousness, odiousness of institutions. No one work makes as clear Emma Goldman's point that history... Now, Emma Goldman made this statement that human history is a struggle between the individual and the institution. And this is really brought home in this story. The story follows Tong Qian, an agent of the Chinese Communist Party in Hanoi. The Chinese Communist Party has emerged victorious over all its enemies and is the dominant ideology in the world system, even dominating the United States. Right? Bureaucratic authoritarianism is not limited to communism in Dick's world, but 
this is written during one of the peaks of Maoism, during the Great Cultural Revolution, or when the Cultural Revolution was, you know, still in its throes. It was easy to for Dick to imagine the emergence, the emergence success of the Chinese system, especially with the popularity of it in the United States at the time. There were a lot of radical movements in the United States that were attracted to to Maoism. Now the regime regulates every aspect of people's lives. And, and Dick shows again and again, he really doesn't understand the communist system. And many Americans in the 50s and 60s didn't understand the Soviet realm that well, even people in the government. You know, now that historians can get at the sources a little bit better, you know, these systems look very different than they looked at people in the 50s and 60s. But we get a lot of kind of classic tropes of authoritarian communism, such as the regulating every aspect of people's lives and ideological control down to the level of the individual. Now, as Qian ponders at one point the unfortunate dialogue with the peddler that, you know, that basically the investigation of his private life by someone who is not of the government is is appalling to him. Right. So he when the peddler asks him questions about himself, he's bothered by that. But he's not bothered by the government or the police asking questions. So he's very much an institutional man. That's the point. He is, however, required by law to purchase something from the peddler since the peddler is a veteran. The product he purchased turns out to be this hallucinogenic drug of sorts, which he consumes in front of the television while watching the typical fare of propaganda, right? And even though I suppose it's illegal to avert your eyes from these propagandas, he, you know, he does tweak the rules a little bit, you know, in, in the sense of, of trying to get his work done, essentially, is why he, he does it. He promises Qian, the peddler promises Qian that the drug, when ingested, will quote, rest eyes fatigued by the continence of meaningless official monologues, a soothing preparation. Take it as soon as you find yourself exposed to the usual dry and lengthy sermons, end quote. So there's a criticism of the nature of political speech and political rhetoric at the time. Now, one of the main tools of control in this society turns out to be education. After meeting the peddler, he you know, he meets with this kind of American communist who establishes schools that have the goal of locating and programming disaffected youth into political correctness. Qian has been given the charge of reading admissions essays to locate those best suited to the program, those most in need of proper ideological education. Now, it seems that communists have had a notoriously difficult time indoctrinating Americans despite the ease of their, of their military victory. So America being presented as militarily weak but ideologically um, cantankerous is, is the situation we have here. Now, nightly, the government beams messages from the leader directly into individuals' homes. Qian highly suspects that these are often custom-made for different people, as Qian himself is mentioned by name and offers support in his new task. And it would be kind of silly to give that message to everyone. But then at the same time, other people seem to know that that message is for him. His observation of these broadcasts are observed, though. When he looks away for a moment at the item, he purchased from the peddler, he was interrupted and disciplined by the building warden. Now, the building warden knew that this message was for him. So, again, it's, you know, it seems while these messages may be individualized, they're also, there's a surveillance state that, that keeps track of who's watching what. He is ordered to begin watching again from the beginning. Instead, though, he takes the drug in the form of the snuff, and when the drug takes effect, he begins to see the leader differently. Quote, he faced a dead mechanical construct made of solid state circuits of swiveling pseudopodia, lenses and a squawk box, end quote. Now, we were, of course, reminded of Martian time slip in which we had characters who would see people, um, the, the main character, Bolan, 
in Martian Time Slip would see characters as, you know, this would be had these schizophrenic episodes. You'd see people as robots. And then later on, there's these robots who appear as humans, you know, these teaching robots. So it's a kind of a nice little contrast there. But this is um, this idea that deep down someone is a robot is kind of a terrifying thing for, for Philip Dick. And it's played with here. Now, after seeing this, Chien calls the authorities who investigate the drug. He soon learns that the drug is a drug, but it's a drug that counteracts the effects of the hallucinogen. Soon after this revelation, he's visited by a girl who explains that Chien has experienced what many others have, although the image of this leader varies. Some, like Chien, see the robot, the clunker. Others see the gulper, who is that Lovecraftian whore. And yet others see a bird of the, quote-unquote, the climbing tube. In all of these, or in all, there are about 12 different images that replace the leader when the individual takes the drug. The image of the human leader giving speeches is the collective delusion imposed on the people by the state through the massive consumption of hallucinogens in the water supply. Now, the you know usually hallucinogens should create individual experiences, right? But Dick often has this idea that hallucinogens will create a kind of common delusion. It might explain religious experiences. Now, Chien also learns that the movement to learn the truth wants him to wants to use him because he's clearly an upwardly mobile party member who will possibly be in a position someday to reveal the truth about what really rules us. The review of student essays is actually a political test of Chien before his promotion in the hierarchy. The movement hopes that he can meet the leader in person under the influence of the anti-hallucinogenic drugs and see finally what it is that is ruling humanity as it is certainly not human. It is almost f fitting that the image of a hedonistic, hypocritical dictator, you know, is, is what we're given of the leader, right? Now, that's, that's another false image of it, but this image of the leader as a hedonistic, hypocritical dictator, right? He's invited to essentially a stag party with beautiful women and drink and everything like that. And yeah, it's a facade, but it's a facade that's very believable, right? Um, that's the, the image we have of dictators. At the party, Chien soon sees the real form of the absolute benefactor. Quote, it has no shape, no pseudopodia, either flesh or metal. It was, in a sense, not there at all. It was terrible. It blasted him with its awareness. As it moved, it drained the life from each person in turn. It ate the people who had assembled, passed on, ate again, ate with an endless appetite. It hated it felt its hate, it loathed, it felt its loathing in every one present. In fact, he shared its loathing. All at once, he and everyone else in the big villa were each a twisted slug. And over the fallen slug carcasses, the creature savored, lingered, but all the time coming directly towards them. Of what, of, of was that an illusion? End quote. So that's the image we get of this consuming entity, this godlike entity. Now, the image of an all-consuming, hating, yet all-powerful deity is Dick's image of the state, consuming all it comes across, presenting itself as a positive force while committing its endless crimes. Qian's recollection of the party ends with a dialogue between Qian and this being, in which it's all made very clear that although the absolute benefactor created the party and the anti-party and everything else, and observes it, he observes it all with utter contempt. As he concludes to Qian, quote, the dead shall live, the living die. I kill what lives, I save what has died. And I will tell you this, there are worse things than I, but you won't meet them because by then I will have killed you. This self-confidence is also stereotypically Dickian 
in his image of imagination of state power, even when sustaining massive delusions, and none quite as universal as the one in faith of our fathers, it is confident in the ultimate power and the incapacity of most to imagine resistance. And of course, there is no resistance in this tale. There's only, you can maybe learn the truth, but that will only lead you to your death. When Qian returns home at the end of the story, he meets the girl from before, the one who introduced him to the drug and tried to con kind of get him on board of their plan. And they proceed to have an intimate evening together. Qian learns that the absolute benefactor is indeed going to have him killed, but he seeks a moment, a final moment of happiness through this random girl. He informs the girl that resistance is impossible outside of the acknowledgement of the horrors he witnessed. Believe in it is the only advice he can manage to give the girl. But he knows that it is not enough to achieve any real resistance, and he longs for a return to his delusion. He longs for a, going back to the belief that the government is, is a benefactor, is benevolent and caring, or even if it's nosy and brutal at times, at least it's understandable. The violence and terror of the state, acknowledged at times by political philosophers from the days of the divine right to the writings of Thomas Hobbes, is still often hidden from view. Now, of course, nowadays we have, you know, an overtly odious president in Donald Trump. And, you know, there's not even the kind of the illusion of odiousness anymore. But, yeah, the good old days of the 60s when we could imagine that state power was, was at least benevolent. Now, like the users of anti-hallucinogens, we can catch pieces of the state's character through the leaked documents, scandals, or the occasional work of journalists. That's us sniffing the anti-hallucinogen. But on a case-by-case -case basis, the lies are not sustainable. The 12 different forms that the lie took for the users resembled the fractured cracks in the edifice of the state authority. Or at least the, the state authority is absolute in the story, but what's not is, is kind of the truth. The, the truth can be exposed, and there are kind of cracks that expose that truth. Seeing the whole might not be possible. So we got a little bit of perhaps the, the elephant game, right? The five blind men and the elephant, the 12 different avatars of, well, I guess the, they're not even avatars. Maybe they're 12 aspects of, of the reality that Qian sees in full force in front of him. Now, seeing the whole may not be possible, even for the most brave and open-minded critic of power, though. Indeed, is not even known by most of the people who serve the state. So, you know, Basically, that's the image we got. The state is horrible. It's in its power. Let's not even talk about the state. Just power is horrific. If witnessed, we can maybe, it presents itself as in a relatively benevolent way, but we can kind of, from time to time, see little glimpses of it. You know, these 12 different forms are symbolic of the little glimpses of the reality of the horror of power that we might see from time to time. But thankfully, we never see the whole. If we see the whole... We're horrified. If we see just part of it, maybe we can handle that. We can stomach that, right? And we can see something that we can need to struggle against. But we're still not seeing the, the totality of it. Well, that's my take on, on Faith of Our Fathers. Um, it's, it's a good one. It's really got a lot of interesting things to say. Um, and I'm going to read it as a critique of power. I'm sure there's a lot of other ways to read it. So please share your own opinions. But before I close up this episode, I want to talk about Another short story that can be looked up as, as a follow-up, but Dick wrote it pretty much right after Faith of Our Fathers, and he actually called it another story for Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions. It actually it has the, the very modest title, The Story to End All Stories for Harlan Ellison's Anthology Dangerous Visions. 
Um, now, it wasn't published in Dangerous Visions or Dangerous Visions 2. I think Dangerous Visions 2 was maybe not till the 70s or something. So um, it, it was instead published in Nikas, which I don't know what that magazine or journal was, but it was published in the fall of 1968, just one, one year after Dangerous Visions came out. And you can probably find this in the fifth volume of the Collected Stories, right after The Faith of Our Fathers. Now, I'll just be very briefly describe you what the story is about. It's literally just one paragraph. Now, what happens is after a hydrogen war, women have sex with animals and mutants in the zoo. And an amalgamated human woman has sex with an alien woman in the zoo, too. The two mothers fight for the child. The human wins and eats the child, but then learns that the child is God. That's the story. Now, it might just be a joke, you know, because a lot of the stories in Dangerous Visions are kind of weird and and. And bizarre. So Dick just says, let's, let's write a really bizarre story and weird story with aliens having sex with animals and humans and then eating children and then, you know, throw God in. And so maybe it's a joke on kind of the nature of the stories in Dangerous Visions. But, um, you know, that's all that really happens in the short, very, very short story. It really is just a playful sketch by, by Dick written as an informal follow-up to the faith of our fathers or as a kind of informal follow-up to Dangerous Visions. Maybe Dick read Dangerous Visions and then was inspired to to jot down the story as the as the ultimate representation of the types of tales in that anthology. It does have though some thematic similarities with Faith of Our Fathers in that we find God as a horrifying aspect of the real world. It speaks to some of Dick's other themes such as posthumanism. Here it's kind of reflected by humans having sex with animals and and aliens and that kind of producing a new type of human entity. We also see the consequences of a nuclear war being played with. Again, a theme that Dick comes back to a lot. It does, though, seem to me that this brief story reflects a change in Dick's writing towards stranger theological investigations, which will really take off in in the 1970s and 80s, um, especially in the 1980s. It, it, this really lacks the social and political power of Faith of Our Fathers, and you know the story doesn't really do that much for most readers outside of it being kind of fun and, and entertaining and just a little little fun little vignette but uh, instead of doing a whole episode on that I, I thought I would just give my thoughts to it at the end of my my review of faith of our fathers so that does it um, so if you have any of your own opinions about faith of our fathers or the story to end all stories please uh, leave them below or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com um, and coming up we are going to look at uh, the one other story published in 1968, not by its cover. This is a fun little story about texts and uh, truth and and kind of, you know, I think a librarian would be interested in this story. Uh, you know, the struggle of preserving texts and historical memory and how memory can corrupt texts and changes interpretations of the past. It's, it's really a nice story. Now, obviously, he published his story to end all stories in 68 as well, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, so that's that's that. Um, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time with uh, Not By Its Cover. No, that's not right. I, I got I forgot. I got to look at one novel published in 1968, and that's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? How could I forget? So we'll have to look at Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep before um, looking at uh, Not By Its Cover. But... You know, if you're just here for the short stories, the next short story I'll cover is, is that one. But yeah, first uh, we'll, we'll do, I'll do probably a multi-part episode on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. So um, that comes up next. So I hope you'll enjoy my thoughts on that very famous novel. 
So that does it. I'll see you next time. And contentment forever If you